Will you please pray with me? Father, as we turn again to your word and continue to search out what it is that you have to teach us about the ways that you heal and restore and make new. Father, we ask that through the work of your spirit and in the authority of the name of Jesus, start with us. Start inside each one of us. Expose to us the places where we need your healing hand, where we need your truth to wash us again, where we need to be made new, where lies have been told to us and we have believed them, where our identity and our goals have been shaped by something other than who we are in you and what you are making us to become. Father, realign Straighten, fix, heal, and breathe new life in us again. So that out of the overflow of the streams of living water that you are creating in us, we too can enter into the healing that you have in mind for the rest of creation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was four years old when both of my grandmothers passed away. I never really grew up knowing grandmothers, so when I married into my wife's family and she had two grandmothers who were still quite young, they took me in and kind of treated me like one of their own grandkids, and I got to experience what it was like to have a grandmother, which is so significant because it really involves eating well. Nikki has one grandmother in particular on her father's side, and she passed away this summer at the age of 93, and it was a great honor. It was the first funeral I ever actually got to officiate in 11 years of ministry, and I had all these memories of her um, that were significant, and I remember especially coming to her house on, for Sunday dinner after church, and there was no way she was going to let you leave that place without being absolutely stuffed. If you would say, I'll have just a little bit more, it ended up being three more scoops and not just one more of potatoes or whatever the food was that was on the table. Sometimes I got the feeling like if she could have strapped us down and put IVs of butter and gravy straight into our veins, (laughs) she would have done it. But over time, you just sort of came to know that if you went there, you were going to leave with an abundance. As we track the journey of the disciples through the Gospel of Mark, they're learning at this stage now that when you come to Jesus, you may be surprised by what you get, but you're going to leave in abundance. And we see them growing in their trust in him now as if for the first time he has sent them out. They have gone out and they've, they've cast out demons, they've healed in Jesus' name, they've spoken with his authority, and now they're coming back to him to tell the stories. So since the last text that we had looked at, of Jesus' healing of, this, of Jairus' daughter and this woman, this is what's now happened in the meantime. And a second significant event has also occurred in the Gospel of Mark, and that is that right before the text we're going to read today, is that Herod has hosted a feast for all the important people in the land. In Mark 6, 21, it says it like this, On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for the high officials and military commanders 
and the leading men of Galilee. Herod invites the creme de la creme of society to come on out for a feast, and he's going to roll out the best of the best for them. Compare and contrast that with the feast that Jesus is about to serve in the next passage. It's the text we're going to read today. It's the feeding of the 5,000, which I don't know if you know this or not, but this is the only miracle story that actually occurs in all four Gospels. Not only that, but Matthew and Mark consider it so significant about what it says about who Jesus is that they actually have two different accounts. And apparently Jesus did this more than once. Stories of the feeding of 4,000 and of 5,000. I think it's in Luke's version where he actually tells us at the end that not only was it 5,000, it was 5,000 men with women and children on top of that. So the multitude that we see fed in this passage is significant. And that meal is compared and contrasted. It is set up in juxtaposition to the meal that Herod prepares. Where, of course, the entertainment at the meal itself becomes a woman who dances for them and the prize she receives, John the Baptist's head on a platter. One leader like that, and one leader like the one we read about in Mark chapter 6, verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. The disciples have come to Jesus. They've been out doing ministry, and they are tired. They are exhausted. Jesus can see it in them, and he wants to take them away so that he can give them rest. They want rest. They have spent themselves, and they've done it for very righteous and holy reasons under Jesus' commission. They have gone, and now they're tired. And as they're on their way to arrive at this place of rest, you can imagine the banks on the shore like ants scattering thousands of people running ahead to meet them when they were already tired. And when Jesus sees them, he has compassion on them. He was willing to enter into and suffer with them. Not like the other leader of the land at the time, Herod, who was feasting himself and ignoring those who need it most. Jesus sees these people and sees their poverty, and he begins to teach them many things, because it's not just food that they stand in need of, but a significant level of teaching and a richness of God. But they're tired. And one of the questions I want you to ask yourself as this text and this passage goes on is, how is it that we defined rest? What is it we really look for when we feel that we are completely exhausted? When you've reached the end of your rope, I think that Christianity has co-opted an idea from our culture that rest and Sabbath is the equivalent of self-indulgence. That it's let everybody worry about their own problems because in this space, in this time, I need a little me time. And I'm amazed to the extent that I hear this language even within our Christian circles and I'm amazed at the amount of time these same words have come off of my mouth. So when you are tired, how is it that you define rest for yourself? What is it that you're looking for when you're at the end of your rope? 
we keep going. Verse 35. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples come to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. There's a little bit of 21st century American individualism in this passage that the disciples already got. Send everybody away and let every man fend for himself. Let them buy themselves something. Isn't that the obvious thing? The disciples have looked out, right? They're becoming leaders. They've surveyed the situation. They're proposing a solution to the problem that is presenting itself in front of them. They're hungry people. Something's got to get done. Let's do the logical thing and let's tell everybody, go figure it out for yourself. Not only that, they're tired. They don't have energy to do this. It's not like there's some super Walmart just a little ways down the beach, right? They don't even have the reason. They're in a solitary place. So where are they going to send everybody to go? Verse 37. Perhaps one of the most shocking lines in this text. But he answered, you give them something to eat. What? Not only that, but consider what Jesus has just told them the chapter before when he sends them out. Chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Calling the twelve to them, he began to... Send them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except the staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Okay, Jesus, so which one is it? Do you want me to go and travel light with absolutely nothing? Or do I need to keep a year's wages on me so just in case, you know, 15,000 people show up and they're really hungry, we got the thing covered? Jesus, which one is it? I don't know if you walk around with most of a year's wages with 40 grand kicking around in your pocket. If you are, I'd like to be your friend. <laughs> but a weird, a weird thing for Jesus to say and to do for people who are tired, and this is acknowledged at the beginning, and they're in a solitary place. This is just a weird scenario that's getting built up. You do it, you give them something to eat. But notice what Jesus is teaching them and us about discipleship in this passage. You and I look out and we're confronting with scenarios that are mathematically impossible in front of us. And we are instructed that the life of a disciple is also one who does not solve the world's problems simply by logic or economic solutions or things that make sense. The life and faith opens up possibilities to us that we can't even comprehend merely on our own. Jesus is cultivating a richer imagination in his disciples, for how to solve the problems of the world. You and I stand and look at the problems of the world. Watch the evening news. A war in Syria that just never seems to end. Who can even figure out who's actually fighting who in the entire thing? To pull all of that apart. All the the refugees and this global crisis taking place as a result of that. The amount of hunger that still exists in the world. The tens of thousands of people who will die today because they don't have enough to eat in the world. We're standing looking out at those problems in the same way the disciples stand in front of this multitude in front of them. It cannot be done. Jesus, I know you teach a lot of weird things sometimes, but look at the hard facts. It cannot be done. That has to be what the disciples are thinking. There's got to be a better solution than this. And Jesus, seizing the discipleship teaching opportunity, throws it back on them. You do it. You give them something to eat. 
Remember in chapter 1, we read the story about Jesus and the leper, and he essentially trades places with the leper. Now he is left out in solitary places. And the leper's question to him at the beginning of that text was what? Not Jesus, are you able, but Jesus, are you willing to heal me? And the question is, of course, our willingness and not our ability to enter into and be a part of the redemption, the healing of the nations. You give them something to eat. Watch the evening news and see the millions who are starving in the world. You give them something to eat. See the wars that are taking place. You stop it. You be part of the solution. See, all of these problems that seem so overwhelming in front of us, some of them we don't even have to go across the globe to find them. Problems, destroyed relationships in our own families, our own extended families, within our community. Hurts deep inside of us. All of these things that honestly feel to us like they are beyond repair. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, you must be relentless in not giving up. We are idealists to the end because everything is going to get redeemed. Everything. Everything. We hold on to hope and the strength and authority in Christ like there is nothing else in the world for us because at the end of the day, there is nothing else in the world for us. Think of all the problems you face in your life today. And consider Jesus' words going back at us like a mirror here. You do it. You solve it. What an odd thing to say for someone who's inviting us to trust in him. That would take almost a year's wages. And are we supposed to go do this? And then verse 38. How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up the twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. Well, what do you have, Jesus says? I'm not asking you what you don't have. What do you have? Every single one of us is plagued by the same problem when we look at the resources in the world. When we look at the hierarchy of global resources available to us on the ladder of the world around us, all of us are always interested in looking up at what we don't have, at the rungs in the ladder higher than the one we stand on. And Jesus reminds the disciples and us again, look down, don't always just look up. What do you have? And then he gives thanks for that. And I'm trying to imagine what the disciples would have been thinking in this moment. I'm guessing they're probably thinking, this is going to be one of those moments where Jesus absolutely just brings us low and humbles us in front of everybody and there's some sort of lesson in all of it. Because we've often become the butt end of the teaching and somehow he's blessing us through this entire thing. And he's breaking us and making us and breaking us and making us. And maybe the disciples thought that's what was going to happen. And so they come to Jesus and they've got this little meager offering Right, a loaf of bread in that day was about eight inches wide um, in a circle. It was about one inch thick. It was about a single person's daily ration. And then a couple small fish. This is piddly. And the disciples are probably standing with Jesus, and he's dividing it up, and they're taking the plates. And at some point in time, 
they're going to have to turn around in front of the crowd with their meager little offering. And then what? But what's so interesting is that so many passages in Mark have the disciples kind of just being clueless and not getting it. But in this one, they do what they're supposed to do. They've come back. They've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. They've gone out in his authority, and they're beginning to see who it is that they really are in Christ. And so they have this little piddly plate of absolutely nothing, and they turn around in front of the crowd, and they actually do it. And here's where discipleship gets formed for us because it's at the end of our ability that often becomes the beginning of faith. So often Christianity in America today is messed up because we want to problem solve based on the resources that we have and then lay those before God. But God is still asking us to do the miraculous. God is still asking us to meet him in the place of the impossible, to survey everything around it, say this, this situation is beyond hope, to which Jesus would say, perfect, here I am, now is the time. Stand with the plate, turn around in front of whatever it is that you're facing. It seems impossible, and the disciples do it, and it's here and here in this moment where now, now is the opportunity for God to teach them something absolutely incredible. If you have the Holy Spirit within you, you are being prompted to dream dreams of restoration and healing and redemption that are beyond reason. And I believe that that is always the case because they have to be enacted by faith. Remember, the disciples are going away to go and find rest. Maybe at the end of the day, this is actually Jesus' definition of rest. Not sitting down by ourselves, stuffing our faces, watching football for hours and hours on end, or however it is you define what a Sabbath rest looks like. Maybe at the end of our rope, we find the beginning of the well of God. Jesus takes the disciples to the end of themselves, and then he shows up. And there will be moments in life where in faith we will turn around with our meager offering before the impossible problems of the world and we are brought low and we are humbled in that moment. But there will be times where you and I turn around with our meager little offering and God has something miraculous in store and will invite us into the redemption and restoration of all things. You were made already now to taste and see that the Lord is good. To look at the impossible problems in your life and ask yourself this question, how great is my God? Not how great is this problem, how great is my God? Is the God that exists within my faith big enough to heal, to restore, to make good out of this? By his definition and not mine. How great is my God? How big is your God? Because you and I are still called to stand in front of the impossible, to turn around in our meager little offering and just wait and see what God wants to do. You dream dreams like this. You guys did it even as a body practically last year, right about this time. You guys were gearing up to shave me, Neil Daru, Walker Cosgrove, and Rockland Mouse heads right? We raised money for this thing. We all did this together as a little community, a little taste of what it can be like to be part of the healing of God in the world. There was an Ebola crisis at the other side of the world. An orphanage was started with the money raised by a bunch of college students who are already taxed, who don't really have a lot of resources, kind of like a bunch of disciples in the middle of nowhere. And then you start something, and you do something, and you set a dream, and your goal was ambitious. There were many of us in administration who actually thought it was kind of silly. How are we going to do this? What are we going to do when we don't reach our goal? We're afraid. What's going to happen? I thought this. 
but you believed what you were supposed to do and you did it. And something got started. And then other people around in this community said, I'll come in as longer-term sponsors and see this all the way through. But you started that. So now this is kind of going to be our annual thing. We're right about this time of year between Thanksgiving and Christmas as a community. We're going to see what we can do together to be part of God's healing ministry and taste and see that the Lord is good. And next week we're going to reveal to you what the plan is for this year's Christmas kind of giving drive and what we're going to do and how we're going to taste and experience the greatness of our God. But in order to just bring this story full circle, I want to share with you a video. I got to go back this summer and for the first time meet the kids um, who you decided to invest in, even though you didn't know, and in some small way turned around with your little offering and laid it down, and God decided to do something beautiful with it. And I think it's worth seeing what it is that you got to be a part of. And I hope that this inspires you. Throughout the course of this, you'll hear the children's choir singing that we recorded that becomes the soundtrack for this. These were all kids who were initially the first wave of orphans that were taken in because their parents died in the Civil War. Now their voices sing, and they sing over the next generation who lost their parents to Ebola, but with the strength and ability in Christ to lead another generation. All the kids that we helped will show up in the scenes that follow where you see the little wing of the plane. You'll also see the farm Um, that several people in this community have been involved and invested in. Um, And you'll see a woman washing clothes in a river um, that will receive a bridge because of Dort College students at the same time too. So all of these scenes of things that you guys are are doing, you'll get to see. I hope it whets your appetite for the feast that is ours in Christ as we turn around with our little plates and see what it is that he wants to do.